Thank you so much, members of the choir. This straightforward letter of James has been rightfully called an epistle in practical Christianity. As James comes to the conclusion of this letter, he appropriately concludes by pointing to the powers and the possibilities in prayer. Perhaps of all the possibilities which he enumerates in this latter portion and in other places, that which has captured the attention of the modern world, indeed the ancient as well, most completely is this the possibility of, of healing through the power of prayer. James makes it very clear that the church of Jesus Christ is to be a company of praying people. He said, if you are suffering, pray. And if someone is sick, let them send for the elders of the church, the leaders of the church. And let the elders anoint the sick one with oil and, and pray for that person. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed any sins, those sins will be forgiven. And we are enamored with the possibilities of prayer, and we should be, because it's the greatest power on earth. One cannot understand this passage of Scripture, however, unless one recognizes that the Greek language is far more versatile than is our English language. The Greeks could say, I love you, about five different ways. We can only say it one time, and we say it in some of the most inane ways uh, possible, bumper stickers and the like. But when, it, when they came to discuss the, the meaning of anointing, or this word to anoint, the Greeks had two words, we only have one. They had a word for anoint which meant a ceremonial anointing, like Christ, the anointed one, or as Samuel anointed uh, Saul or David, they were the anointed one. But when James refers to this anointing of the sick, he did not use the word for ceremonial anointing. Rather, he used the word for anointing, which means to treat someone's wound. You see, anointing someone with oil was the accepted medical practice in that day. Read chapter 10 of St. Luke, and you will understand that what Jesus meant when he told the story of the man who was left wounded in the ditch, how the Samaritan came and, and poured oil on the open wounds. Again, that was the only disinfectant they had, the alcohol and wine. And then the oil followed the pouring on of the alcohol. When there was an open wound, they used the disinfectant and followed it with oil. When there was no open wound, just someone was sick, they anointed with oil and then they prayed. You can find that word for anoint in all of the secular medical journal, journals written during biblical times. It was the accepted method of treatment. Now, some people have made it a fetish almost by making the oil something magic. But those Christians never thought in terms of the oil as having magical properties. 
that was their way of treating someone. They believed it had medicinal value, so they put on oil and then they prayed. They believed that all healing was grounded in God. And whether the healing came through the medicine or whether the healing came through divine healing, it was all divine. The church has always been the custodian of the healing graces. God healed dramatically more in the early years than he does in our time. Sometimes the methods change, but God still heals, both supernaturally and through medicine. The sacrament of unction, for instance, used by the Roman Catholic Church, was at first applied to someone as a preparation for healing. It wasn't until the year 852 A.D. that the sacrament of unction became the sacrament of extreme unction and became a, a preparation for death instead of the preparation for life it had been for 850 years. The church has always been involved in this business of healing. And so for them to talk about applying their best medicine, oil, and prayer, is just like saying, take your medicine and say your prayers. We still believe that's the best possible way of healing. And all of it is grounded in God. And he says, if you'll do this, if you'll put on the oil and pray for the people, let the elders pray for the people, uh, the Lord will raise that person up. We believe that. The key to understanding that scripture is the word Lord. They used it purposefully. The earliest creed in the, in the church was Jesus is Lord. And to say the Lord will raise him up means that the Lord will do what he thinks best. The Lord is the final authority. And you can trust your life to Jesus Christ who is your Lord. It means we're Christians. After we've prayed all of our prayers, we say, Lord, your will be done. Now, obviously, the Lord doesn't heal everyone exactly as we ask. Every cemetery is a testimony to the fact that he doesn't heal everyone. If he healed everyone, no one would ever die, and we'd give a lie to that verse in the Bible that says, it is appointed unto man once to die. But the prayers of faith will raise them up. Will raise them up now? Will raise them up later? Or will raise them up in the last day on the other side of the river? We believe, however, the prayers of faith will raise them up. Now, I remember one man I went to see who was dying with a long, lingering illness. And before I got in to see him, I was lectured by his wife saying, don't even say anything that would intimate that he's going to die. I said, what are you talking about? And, and, and she said, well, he's prayed the prayer of faith, and, and he mustn't waver. If he prays the prayer of faith and never wavers, then he will be healed. It was one of the saddest things I've ever seen. It was a man who was obviously dying, didn't make all the preparations people ought to make when they have time to do that, didn't get a chance to talk about their feelings or to share them with a pastor. Uh, he, he had prayed the prayer of faith. James wasn't talking about the faith of the sick person. He was talking about the prayers of faith prayed by the elders. So instead of putting all that guilt on that poor old dying man, the elders should have been examining their own faith. Why aren't our prayers healing him?
Sometimes God heals now, miraculously. Sometimes he heals through medicine. That's also miraculous, we think. Sometimes he heals later. Sometimes he heals in the next life. But we believe God heals. And then he goes on to say that this person's sins will also be forgiven if that person has committed sins. And we assume everybody has. Now, for the Jews, there was a close relationship between sin and sickness. You notice that right in the opening part of the Gospel of Mark, when they brought that paralytic to Jesus. And our Lord said, uh, Son, your sins are forgiven. And uh, some of his enemies sneered and said, Why, everybody can say your sins are forgiven. But the point is, he's still a paralytic. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Now, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise, take up that pallet, and go home? But that you may know that I have power on earth to forgive sins, rise, take up that pallet, and go home. Now, later, you remember, he, he changed that whole way of understanding a relationship between sin and sickness when his disciples saw a blind man, and they said, Lord, who sinned? I mean, this man is blind. Obviously, he sinned or his parents sinned. And Jesus said, neither one of them sinned. You see, it isn't so neat. Sometimes we sin against our bodies and our sickness is the result of our sin. But then sometimes we get sick and it isn't a result of sin at all. The main thing for us to know is that no one ever becomes well completely well, psychologically, physically, emotionally, unless that person is right with God. I like what that doctor said who was given the Nobel Prize for physiology. They, were, they turned to him to make his speech, and that man talked about prayer. He said the impact of prayer on the mind and soul of the human body is as measurable as a secreting gland. Now that not from a pious preacher, but from a scientist. He said it is as measurable and as predictable as a secreting gland. No wonder Tennyson said that old line. More things have been wrought in this world by prayer than the world dreams of. It's true, there is tremendous power in prayer. And to undergird the power in prayer, James turns to that old prophet Elijah and tells about uh, an experience in his life. He tells how Elijah, uh, under the direction of God, went to see that wicked king Ahab. And he said to Ahab, you can read it in 1 Kings 17, 18. He said to Ahab, Ahab, as the Lord God lives, before whom I stand, there will not be any rain on your country for three years and a half. In fact, he said there won't even be any dew. Now, you know, that's getting pretty dry. There won't even be any dew on this land. And it was such a harsh saying, you know, Elijah had to go and hide. He had to get out of there after the drought began. But in God's good time, he came back and they had that big contest on Mount Carmel. 
flat top of that mountain. You can see in miles around in all directions. It was there that Elijah decisively defeated the priest of Baal. And after he had defeated those priests, he then began to pray. Now this was a man who said, I stand before God when I pray. This was a man who knew that he had an audience with the Almighty. Now that's a person of prayer. You believe you have an audience with the Almighty when you pray. Except this time he wasn't standing as the Jews characteristically prayed. The Bible says he, he got down and put his head between his knees. This is a fervent prayer. And he began to pray for that rain that was going to end the drought. He sent his servant over to the western side of, that, of Mount Carmel and says, Look out toward the Mediterranean and tell me what you see. Servant came back and said, It's just as clear as it's been for three years and a half. Don't see anything out there. Elijah prayed some more. Seven times he sent that servant to the edge of Mount Carmel and he, and he hadn't seen a thing. And finally, on that seventh time, I can see that old servant. Doesn't matter how humble he was or obedient or anything. By now, he's getting a little cynical. I mean, if anybody's watching, he's embarrassed a little bit. This is seven times he's gone out there. Nothing. The sky's like brass. And on the seventh time, he comes back to Elijah and yawns a little bit and said, Oh, yeah, I, I see something out there. It's a cloud about the size of a man's hand. Elijah said, you run, tell the king, there's going to be a frog strangler. Didn't matter how fast a man ran, the king almost drowned. The heavens opened up, covered with these dark clouds, and the whole uh, country was watered, and it began to bring forth uh, fruit. Now, what is, the, what is he telling us as he uses this illustration about the power of prayer? He's saying when we pray, and this is a big thought, he's saying when we pray, we line up with the same forces and powers that direct the activities of this universe. That's all he's saying. He's saying when we pray, God will tax the last grain of sand on the farthest seashore to answer those prayers when we pray in his will. That's what he's saying. Kind of like Deborah, when she was ruling over the nation of Israel. You remember she had a hard time finding a man with any courage. She finally got old Barak to go up and fight Sisera, the Canaanite captain. Sisera had a 900 iron-wheeled chariots. That was a frightening thing in those days. And they outnumbered the Israelites by far. Well, Deborah, Barak said, I'm not going unless you go with me. And Deborah said, I'll go. And she sent him into battle. And, and that day the forces of God and Israel defeated the Canaanites. And when Deborah was writing about it later and singing her song, she said it was, it was like the stars in their courses fought against Sisera. Because we were following the direction of our God. Everything in the universe bent to assist us. Now, if that's a big thought, maybe it's bigger still to think about the righteous person. Is the prayer of a righteous person 
that has great power in its effects, even effects on God. Maybe we don't feel righteous enough to pray fervently. Maybe we feel a little bit like the little boy who had grown honest in his prayer life, and praying will make you honest. And his father asked him to have the blessing one day, and the little boy protested, and the father said, What's the problem? He said, God, uh, Father, if I, if I thank God for the broccoli, won't he know I'm lying? Well, maybe we ought to send that to the president, do you think? Uh, but sometimes we, we feel so convicted, we, we don't feel righteous enough to pray. We need to remember that, that righteousness is not the result of our good works, but righteousness is a right relationship with God made possible through faith in Jesus Christ. And look at this righteous person and how he was healed. The Bible says they confess their sins to one another, you have to use some wisdom about that one. They confess their sins to one another, and he said, pray for one another that you may be healed. They were healed as they prayed for one another. Now that's a whole nother level of prayer. They were healed as they prayed for each other. All of which means that this righteous person was so confident of his relationship with God that on his worst day, he would trust God with all of his troubles and still lose himself in prayer for others. He knew God understood what he needed even before he prayed it. He trusted God with his troubles and lost himself praying for others. You're healed as you intercede for each other. I've been blessed all through my ministry, and I still have persons who pray for me. It's a great, great gift. I remember one man who was absolutely blind. I don't mean partially. I mean absolutely blind. He spent the last years of his life alone in a room. His, his wife had long since died, and he listened to our service on the radio. I remember going to see him once and again, and each time being lifted. Because that man had light in his soul for which many people are looking. And I was always so impressed with his prayers. I don't only prayed for him, but then he would say, now let me pray for you. And his prayers almost lifted me off the ground. And as I would walk out of his room, I would think, Lord, I'd rather have one man, one righteous man praying for me like that than to have the well wishes of 10,000 pagans. I mean the prayers of a righteous person. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The ears of the Lord are always open to hear the cries of the righteous. And he will deliver them out of their trials. Donald Barnhouse told about the woman in Scotland. He went to see her as a young, inexperienced minister and was captivated by her great confidence in Christ. He said, would you still have that confidence if he let you sink into hell? She said, if I were to sink into hell, I would have only my soul to lose. If my Christ let that happen, he would lose more. He would lose his good name. 
For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Walking in that confidence is the only way to live. Like Joseph Scriven, who only hours before he was to marry, only hours before his wedding, received the word that the woman he was to marry had been tragically drowned. He sat down in his great grief and began out of his confidence to write down simple words that have stirred the hearts of millions. What a friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. James said, Elijah was in like manner as all of us, the same nature. He was flesh and blood. You've tried everything on earth. You say, why not move heaven? Why not pray? Why not move heaven? Why not call out to God? Oh, I know how impatient we are. We live in a fast food age, and if we don't get results immediately, we want to we give it up. But I tell you, some wonderful things have happened because someone believed in the power of prayer. I think about that man, Joseph uh, Roger Babson, rather, a renowned statistician. He's spoken at chambers of commerce all over America. He said that he, in all his travels, had never discovered one useful institution that had not been founded by a religious person or by someone whose mother and our father prayed for them. Not one. He said he's made that statement all over America and he's never been challenged a single time. You can understand then why I was thrilled the other night as I preached a revival in East Texas and I had a, a young mother respond to a challenge. I preached on prayer and I challenged the people there to spend some time every day in prayer. That's not easy for us anymore because so many things intrude. I said, if you're willing to accept that challenge and to become a person of prayer, I want you to slip down here to the altar and kneel and seal your promise with God. And when I gave the invitation, this, this woman came down the aisle. She had a little baby girl in her arms, must have been about four weeks of age, just a tiny thing. She had a pink dress on and a little lacy collar. I used to be so dumb, I never noticed things like that, what children wore. But I, I, I noticed that little baby, and sound asleep, her mother, her mother knelt at the altar and committed herself to become a person of prayer. And I looked back at her old husband, who was sitting on the end of the so he could flop his, his arm on the end of it like we all like to do. And, and it, she had to climb out over him. I mean, he was holding on to the pew to keep from obeying the Lord and what he wanted him to do. And she had to climb out over him and come and kneel and, and commit herself there at the altar. And as she, she prayed, I, I looked at that husband and I thought, you were a blessed man. I looked at that baby and I thought, you were a blessed man baby, because you're going to be covered by the prayers of a praying mother. We don't know all the wonders prayer has wrought. I read an editorial the other day that said when the, when the history of the 20th century is written,
one of the heroes, one of the heroines, will be Mikhail Gorbachev's mother. Did you read that editorial? This woman, as best we know, is a devout Christian. And when her son came to power in Russia, you couldn't be an official in the Communist Party unless you were a strict atheist. One wonders how she found the courage to pray for that boy. They were persecuting the Christians. You know what happened to them in Russia. And now through his reforms, unbelievable changes at home and abroad, we see things happening first in Poland, then Czechoslovakia and East Germany, and we see the Berlin Wall go down. And now I read the other day that the communists are counting on religion to help them pull their country back together. Because they said when respect for God left our country, we lost respect for all authority. And now they're counting on Christianity. And they have more people in church in Russia today than they had in church when the communists took over. This man who wrote about Gorbachev's mother said, Ms. Gorbachev, keep on praying. Keep on praying. The prayers of a righteous person have great power in their effects. When our choir goes to New York, I want to be sure and go by the RCA building and see that old statue of, of Atlas. Frederick Morris showed it to me the first time. Frederick and I were up there, and he wanted me to see old Atlas, perfectly proportioned man holding that world upon his back. And one wonders just how long he can do that. I mean, how strong is that statue? And then you can leave there and go across Fifth Avenue to St. Patrick's Cathedral. And, and go in and look at the little shrine behind the high altar. And there is a statue of Jesus when he was maybe eight, nine years of age. He's also holding the world. He's holding it in the palm of his hand. Bruce Larson was right. You and I have a choice. We can go through life carrying the whole world on our backs. All our suffering, all our sickness, all our sins, or we can bring ourselves and our world and put it into the hands of Jesus. Let him have it. Let him bear those burdens. You aren't equipped to carry them. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, Forgive us for the poverty of our prayers. If, like Elijah, we have an audience with the Almighty, help us to pray big and to think big and to know that nothing is impossible for you. Give grace, then, to our prayers, O God, and grant that there, if there is someone here this day who has not yet made a commitment to become a person of prayer, Grant that beginning now, that person will begin the discipline of praying. And then, O oh Lord, grant that some lonely person might come to the church, a fellowship of prayer, and blend their prayers with ours. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
We'll sing the first, second, and last stanzas of our hymn of commitment. Let those who have felt the Spirit of Christ moving in your life obey his call. Do what the Spirit leads you to do. Your life will be blessed because of it. The doors of this church are wide open. We'd be pleased to receive you into our membership. Will you come? Thank you for coming to worship with us today. I hope that you're also a person of prayer. And if you feel lonely with your burdens, why don't you give us a call? We'd be glad to put you on our prayer list. God bless you, and thanks for worshiping with us. Thank you.